Then he comes to the woman. To the woman, he said, verse 16, I will greatly increase your labor pains. With pain, you will give birth to children, and you will want to control your husband, but he will dominate you. Now, does that mean there was pain before the fall? Don't know. The implication of increase says yes, but how much? Just a teeny little bit? Don't know. Now, we do know that pain is not necessarily bad, because I would kind of like when I put my hand in the fire before the fall to know that it kind of hurts so I can pull it out in the middle of the sleep. I want it to wake me up. So pain's not always bad. What's bad is suffering. So what he's saying is I'm going to bring suffering into a childbirth. And I know some people think, well, we can fix that because we can pump her so full of drugs she won't feel anything. But it's not that. It's the whole process. It's the trying to conceive brings suffering. It's the fact that the child isn't always born brings suffering. It's the fact that the, bringing the child, even if you pump her full of drugs, those drugs have been known now to cause serious problems. Some women live with back pains the rest of their life because of an epidural, even the ones done right. There is connection to ADD and other things, the drug being bombarded as a little kid. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty if you have epidural, but the reality is there is con- nothing like we can nail yet, but There's a lot of questions. Kind of wonder, like, is it good for a baby, the first thing it experiences his entire life without that membrane that protects its brain, to be bombarded with all these chemicals? And then it refers to the whole childbearing, like raising them and rearing them. Oh, my goodness, suffering. It's the whole process. The point is your relationship with bringing new life into the world is going to be broken. You cut yourself off from the ultimate source of life, therefore producing and growing life is going to be broken. It's going to be suffering. Now, some of your translations say, her desire will be for her husband, but he will dominate her. You're like, oh, how romantic, and he ruins it. (laughs) Bought into the feminism of America. Now, there might be some truth to that. Some scholars do point to that and say, she, despite the pain in childbirth, they say she'll still desire to want to have sex with him and have children. And that will be her curse, that she'll constantly want him to desire her and he won't in return all the time. But the problem with that is it doesn't fit the context of headship. And what really is this word control goes to, the other only other time we see that word control is in Genesis chapter 4 when God says, the serpent who's seeking to control you or you must control it. And so what it really should be seen is she will try to seize headship from him, and he will maintain his headship in an unhealthy way. And it can go to the extreme where he will physically abuse her to just the point of he just doesn't talk to her and share things with her. I mean, we, most of us have been married or watched our parents or watched enough people in the world to know that relationships are all about manipulation without Christ. Even with Christ, we give her the silent treatment, or we do this, or we do that, or whatever. And so for her, it might be the extreme of nagging, or keeping him out of things, or not sharing things with him, to the extreme of, he might be the head, but I'm the neck that turns him. Okay? And you can see men who may not have been physically beaten by their wife, but they have been verbally beaten by him so much that he is always passive and always silent all the time. And so basically the idea is your relationship with each other is now going to be broken. 
the conflict that you have in marriage, the fact that marriage is so awesome, but at the same time so hard and so fraught with conflict is a result of this. Why? Because your relationship with God is not right. And that's what he's emphasizing here. And then he comes to the man. But Adam, he said, because you obeyed your wife, notice that points to headship too. That points to headship. You must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground, thanks to you, and painful toil you will eat of it the days of your life. So basically now the ground is not going to freely produce anymore. Now through your blood and sweat and toil, it's going to produce life. So you're going to have to work really hard just to get life. The same judgment that is on her to bring life and keep life is going to be suffering. For the man, to bring life and to keep life is going to be suffering. Well, that's okay because we've got grocery stores now. We don't have to slave it out there on the farm. Yeah, but a lot of you are stuck in cubicles with these kind of lights that cause tumors and headaches and migraines, and you're with bosses that you're unhappy with. Sometimes you wonder if you're just making a company make more money. You're fraught with these bills that you can't pay and whole life insurance and on Medicare and on da da And work isn't as comfortable. Yeah, you're not working in the coal mine. It could be worse. But at the same time, paying the bills. And then there's a whole keeping up with the Joneses, which has created more stress because now you have to make more money. And so basically life is going to be suffering and toil. And then there's economic collapses and all that kind of stuff. And the ground is actually going to produce thorns. Creation is actually going to keep you from growing things. It's amazing when you plant a garden how easily things just grow, but it's also amazing how quickly they can just die and disappear too. (laughs) Okay? That that, um, contradiction that goes there. And then the ultimate is until you return to the ground. Now there is, this is the only hint that you get the sense of a final victory. But the victory is the ground. It's your death. You are going to suffer and work and toil just to keep life going. Children, food, crops, relationships, until eventually what will happen? Chaos will win and you will die. This is a battle that you will never win. There's no hope here. There's no hope here. Your relationship with God is broken. Now your relationship with each other is broken. Your relationship with creation is broken. And this is why now every single story that we read and watch is man versus man, man versus nature, man versus himself, man versus machine. Because our relationship with everything is broken. Every story you read tells the story of the Bible. Things are good, introduction, there's a conflict that's introduced, everything goes wrong, and then it's you in conflict, and then there's the fairy tale of the resolution. And sometimes that fairy tale is real because Christ is involved in our lives and brings resolution at things, but the ultimate resolution is yet to be there. So it's very interesting that deep down inside, every story we write actually follows God's established creation, fall, redemption, consummation, conclusion. Everything fixed. And that's what we're telling. Everything is broken. Everybody feel very warm and fuzzy inside and cheery? (laughs) But the whole point is this is explaining why things are not right. 
So now our sense of safety is gone. Our sense of love and acceptance is gone. And our sense of significance and purpose is gone. Now the man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all life and the living. So he now actually gives her a personal name. And now they officially and concrete become Adam and Eve. Not the man and the woman, but Adam and Eve. And he names her as the mother of all life. That's where you get the first sense of hope. That despite the suffering, despite the fact that the ground will ultimately win, there's still this hope that she can still produce children and there will still be life. And that's going to bring us to chapter 5 too. Chapter 5 is going to carry this dual theme, death and be fruitful and multiply. And we're going to have those contrary themes going the same all together. And Yahweh God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothe them. This is also the first sense of hope that you get here. God actually clothes them, but he clothes them with something better, animal skins, not fig leaves. Now, part of this is a provision for them, despite their curse, but also part of it is a mark to remind them of their sin. Now, there's a couple things going on. This shows that there is some sense of animals dying pre-Noah, where God says, now you can eat of the animals. We get this idea that no animal was killed and people didn't eat animals until the Noah and the flood, and God says, now you may eat of the animals. But you must remember that God never ever forbid the eating of animals or the killing of animals. He only said, he emphasized the plants. So obviously, if we got Adam and Eve with an animal being killed, and then we got Abel sacrificing an animal, then they are killing animals, and they are eating them, pre-Noah's flood. That's something that you must understand, that the animal eating and killing has never been prohibited specifically. It's just the eating of plants has been emphasized. But all of the meaning when it comes to that, I don't know. I don't know. So God makes garments for skin. So at the same time, this will be a mark. Every time they put on their animal skins, they'll be reminded of their nakedness and how they had to hide it and their shame, and they'll be reminded that this animal had to die because of their sin. Now, some scholars say there's nothing about an animal sacrifice here. God's just providing animal skins because they're better. But I have a hard time believing that. Because one, yes, God doesn't specifically mention that he sacrificed the animal and covered them with the blood of the animal. But when you're writing this to a culture that just came out of Egypt and they were just handed the sacrificial system, and the law is primarily about the sacrificial system, and their entire relationship with God is completely dependent upon the sacrificial system, I think it would be a hard time for them not to think about a sacrificial system as they're learning about an animal being killed after they just committed a sin, and they're now right with God. So I think he doesn't directly mention animal sacrifice because they already know it. Which means that this may actually be the first hint of hope. And the hope is that the blood of an animal is making them right with God again. Now, why the blood of an animal? Because blood is a life. Look, covering yourself in blood does not magically cover your sins. And we know that. But blood is the symbol of life. Leviticus tells us that the life is in the blood. Because in a society where you can't do brain scans, you can't see a heart pumping, unless you're, you're dead, but that's not good, what is the clearest sign of life? Blood. And what's the clearest sign that you're dead? Your blood's all gone. Now, you say, well, they stopped breathing. But don't we know people who stop breathing, they come back again? 
Don't we know people with their hearts have stopped and they come back again? There's people whose brainwaves have flatlined and they come back again. But if you bleed somebody out, they're not coming back. And the one thing that our body needs more than anything is blood. I mean, yeah, we need oxygen, but without blood, that's useless. Blood is the circulatory system that brings everything to everything. And so it's not that blood covers your sins. It's that an innocent life dying in your place is what now makes you not guilty anymore. And blood becomes the most physical, tangible sign of that because you can't see life, but you can see blood. So it's not the blood, it's the life of something innocent. And this is where we get the hope, that there is a way back to God, but something innocent has to die. Now, this does not scream Jesus to them, but it does say something that there is a way. Jesus is trigonometry. Right now, they just need to learn their numbers. And so he starts with a very basic, if you want to still have life, then something innocent has to die. And then he'll begin to build on that until we get to Jesus. And so this is the first place where we begin to see hope. It does not scream Jesus, but it does scream the beginning of, I can come back to God. But it also prevents a frustration and a futility, futility of it all. Because Hebrews is going to make the point that if the blood of an animal, the life of an animal, could truly bring you back to God and cover your sins, then why did they have to keep sacrificing over and over and over and over and over and over again? So the fact that you kill the animal and then you sin and you have to kill another one and kill another one and kill another one means that, yes, you get this sense of hope that you can come back to God, but there's still a sense of defeatism in that because you got to keep doing it. And there's no sense of finality. And so, therefore, the animal skins not only become a matter of God providing for them, but it becomes a constant mark reminding them of their sin. And this is typically how God works. Read the prophets. The prophets are amazing. Because in the prophets, God smacks you and hugs you at the same time. <laughs> I mean, he's like, doom, 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 you sinful, ungrateful people. He even calls you whores. Literally. But then he says, I love you. I'll redeem you. I'll restore you. I'll give you a new heart. And you're like, what's going on? But that's what God does. He marks them with this provision, I love you. At the same time, it's a constant reminder of their sin. Because if we're not constantly reminded of our sin, then we'll never seek out our God as a Savior. And so what seems dysfunctional, to slap you and hug you at the same time, is actually completely necessary. Because without the reminder of your sin, you'll never seek out the hug. And you'll never find life. And that's what God is going to do all throughout the Bible. He's going to keep reminding you of your sin. Romans. Read the first two chapters. It's not... Americanism, doggone it, people like you. But there is the I love you so much that thank God for Jesus Christ. Because those who love or forgiven of much, love much. And that does not mean that the hell's angels, biker, alcoholic guy who murdered somebody is going to love Jesus more than somebody who had a pretty decent childhood their entire life because he sinned more. The point is that when you truly understand that you are that horrible, wretched sinner, and that there is no difference between the hell's angels, alcoholic biker who murders somebody, and your heart, that's the one who loves much. 
And that's why we need to be constantly reminded of our sin, not to throw us into self-deprecation, but to make us realize how awesome it is that God chose to pursue us and make a covenant with us despite that. Because of those who are forgiven of much, love much. Does that make sense? The best thing you can do is get in touch with what your heart really truly is. And the minute you start saying, I could never, or that's not me, then you're missing out on so much of who Christ is. Now, God admits, they know knowledge and wisdom like he does. They must not stretch out their hand and eat from the tree or they'll live forever. We already talked about that last week. There is a sense of the tree that they are in some sense mortal. And as long as they keep eating from that tree of life, they're going to live forever. But now that they've sinned, they're cut off from the source of life, which means now they get to die. How does that work? I have no idea. It's just what God says. So then he expels them from the garden. And this becomes the overall most devastating consequence of sin. Because now they're completely removed from the presence of God. And now they are dead, as Paul says. And they will not experience the garden of life anymore. And if you want to see, some of us have been believers for a very long time. And it's hard for us to remember a day that we weren't experiencing joy and hope and peace. And yes, there's times that we don't experience that. But overall, there is a hope and a joy and a peace that is always there. And there's so many Christians that I can just look at and I know that they're Christian. I don't know what it is. I just see it and I'm like, there's, they're a Christian. I know it. And then you start talking you realize they are. But it's been a long time since we've felt that complete emptiness. Turn on the news. Go visit people who have no hope. It's, it's amazing how many people just have vacant looks. Go to happy hour in the bars and listen to people talk and talk about their lives and look into their eyes and that should remind you what it means to be cut off from God. That's what it's like to be cut out from God. And then he expelled them from the orchard and he sent them out east. Now, before east was a good thing because the garden was in the east and the gate is in the east that allows you to come into the garden. But now the east is going to become bad because now every time there's somebody moving eastward, what are they doing? They're moving away from the garden. So you're going to see Adam and Eve going east, away from the garden. Cain is going to be cast out into Nod towards the east. Noah is going to go into the east. You're going to see this going into the east over and over again. And it's a constant reminder to you that being removed from the presence of God is a constant theme throughout the Bible. And so east, in some ways, becomes is good because that's the, where the gate is to enter the tabernacle. But at the same time, most of us are east of the tabernacle, which is not good. And so east kind of becomes a negative word. Now notice how all these words can be negative and positive. The water, positive. But it's raging, bad. The wind, positive. Darkness, they all. But what makes it bad now is our sin. Our sin has begun to redefine words. So he drove out the man. That drove emphasizes the finality, the intensity, and the quickness of it. He manned and placed the eastern side of the orchard of the Eden angelic sentries. 
the word here is cherubim. We have no idea what cherubim are. We know they're a composite creature. They have the face of an, an ox, an eagle, a lion, a man. But in Revelation, they're portrayed as having one face each. We know that they're not angels, and they're portrayed as guardians of God's holiness. But other than that, we have no idea what a cherubim is. They're not angels. And so he places two cherubim in front of the garden, which basically communicates the none shall pass. You are forever barred. There is no getting through a cherubim. And not only that, they have a flaming sword. And fire becomes, is a symbolic of the presence of God, but it's also symbolic of judgment. And notice that it's a spinning sword, which means that there's no getting through the sword. Try walking through the helicopter blades. You're not getting through especially when it's on fire, especially wielded by a cherubim. And the idea is they're guarding the holiness of God. And there is no getting through. And every single time we see God in heaven on his throne, there will always be cherubim between God and us. Ezekiel, Isaiah chapter 6, Daniel, even Revelation. Because we're forever cut off. And there is no getting through them. And so this creates... Not only that they're cacked out of the garden, but the finality of God's decision that there is no way you're getting back in. Not this way. Not this way. This is why it's so important for you to understand when Jesus comes along, he says, I am the gate. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Because he's going back to this imagery here. This imagery. There is now a way in. But it's not through the cherubim. It's through Jesus Christ. And that language is intentional. And so this is the sin of humanity. This is the fall. Any questions? Comments? All the positiveness from the last two weeks sucked out of you? <laughs> <laughs>